Tonight I want to return to our study of the book of Revelation. So if you would, grab your Bibles and, and uh, turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off. Uh, kind of a lengthy introduction uh, last week to, to, to the book and, and laying out some foundations for what we'll be looking at. Uh, we spent a lot of time with this scroll that is sealed with seven seals. That's in the chapter 5, and it goes through a, a lot of description of it. And basically what we left off with was, I believe that that scroll contains the events for this seven-year tribulation, uh, this seven-year trouble that uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel talks about. And as each one of these seals is broken and the scroll is unrolled, a different event takes place on the earth. And um, that is all in the hands of Christ. It's all initiated by Him, and He will set things in motion. So in chapter 6, we're going to start looking at these different seals as they are opened. And I, I hope you did a, a little bit of homework that I that I assigned, I guess, uh, reading verses 1 through verse 4, and just kind of seeing what's there. I want to try to cover that all tonight. If we don't, and then we'll go to next week. But um, we'll see if you noticed some of the things that I noticed, and we'll try to see what these things mean. So we're going to be in chapter 6, and uh, <clears throat> we're going to try to tackle the first four verses as we do, and as we begin to step more into this book and deeper in, we're kind of wading in. Imagine if you're on a shoreline and we're on the beach, and we're kind of wading in, getting our feet wet, and uh, getting used to the style. You have to remember the style of Revelations. It's very unique. It's a, a different structured book. Like I said last week, you can read Genesis and Exodus, and you can read them start to finish, and it's chronological. These things take place along a timeline. Revelation is not quite that way. Um, it's got, John's, John's writing as these visions are being shown to him. That's what he's told in the beginning. Write this down. Okay, so he's writing down what he sees as the Lord reveals it to him. Um, he's writing it down, and they're not necessarily, I believe, in chronological order. Um, the vision, as he's given it, will kind of zoom in and out. You'll get a big picture, like this is going to happen, and then they'll give details along the point. And sometimes he goes back, and sometimes he kind of skips forward. Uh, so Revelation is always zooming in and out. We have to remember that. It's not like, okay, ch chapter 7 happens after chapter 6, and 8 after chapter 7. That's not necessarily the case. What we're going to see here in Revelation 6 and part of verse 7 is kind of like an overview. It's kind of like a a big picture timeline of the major events that's going to happen along this seven-year period. And chapter 8 through 18, give or take, we'll go back and fill some of it in. It'll, it'll kind of give us a, a fuller picture of what's going on. And then if you pair this writing with the other apocalyptic literature, specifically the book of Daniel, it begins to fill in a lot of gaps. And I believe we can have a pretty clear understanding of what's going to happen. People are scared off by Revelation. They hear the, the, the title of the book and, man, I can't understand it. That's too much for me. It's really not if you just simply read it and think about it. Um, you can 
think yourself into a corner if you try to assign names and dates. And <laughs> It's quite amazing, actually, when you begin to read some commentary and all of these people in the past. I, I like to read commentaries that are old. Um, the past and how, how they've thought about, oh, it's going to be in this date or it's going to be by this time or this year. And it is past each year that has been... Um, projected, if we just simply read it and, and think about it and try to understand it, as it said in, in I believe in chapter 1, blessed is he that readeth the words of this prophecy and keepeth them. If we just keep them and kind of keep an eye open, I think it's pretty simple. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm super smart. I'm just saying it, that's the way the Bible's written for us to understand and for us to keep in our hearts. So let's, uh, let's take a look and see what we can understand here. As we get into chapter 6, I don't know if any, if any of you have heard the term, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I'm sure you've heard it along some point in your life. If you didn't know, it comes right from this book, right from the Revelation. And actually, we're going to start to take a look this week and probably next week at the four horsemen, as they're called. They're actually the first four seals on this scroll, and uh, we'll take a look at them. Who are they? What do they mean? Are they real or are they symbolic? Are these like real guys on real horses or does this symbolize something? Do they represent? Are they all different people? Is it four different people he's talking about or is it all talking about the same person or same system? So let's that's kind of the direction where we'll go. So let's look and uh, I want to read verse one through eight. Actually, we'll read about all four of them. Revelation chapter 6 will begin in verse 1 and go down through verse 8. The Bible says this, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Why don't we go ahead and open our study in prayer together. So if you would bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessings you've given us. Lord, I ask now that you look on our time together as we open your word and seek to understand what you have written for our learning. Lord, Give us perceptive minds and open hearts to your spirit and uh, give us the understanding that only you can. I ask for your grace as we walk through this together. 
I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's start with verse 1, because there's something there that's important I want, to, I want you to see and I want to reiterate. Verse 1 says, And when I saw the Lamb opened one of the seals. Let's not forget something we, we kind of hammered on last week. That Lamb is Jesus. In fact, the book of John chapter 1 and verse 29 says, says this, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is Christ in His final glorified state, and He is still called the Lamb. He is still known for eternity for His work on the cross and what He has done for us. And He is the one that opens the seals. Remember in chapter 5, there was nobody who was found worthy, not an angel, not a man, no one else but Christ. He alone is worthy to open these seals. He alone breaks open each one of these seals. He alone set thing, sets things in motion. Nobody else does. Not man, not Satan, not his demons. It's Christ who initiates and controls all that happens. The final seven years of this age as we, are know, as we know it are waiting on Christ to set things in motion. And in all of it, He is going to be master. You notice the Bible doesn't say, He opened one of the seals and it exploded like a can of snakes. <laughs> or like one of those deadly biscuit cans. I don't know if you've ever got one of those from the store and you have to unwrap the, the cover a little bit and you follow the black line and you're just waiting for the poof when it, when it finally opens. And it feels like a bomb when it finally goes off because you're, you're so uh, weary of it. It doesn't happen like that. He didn't say, open one of the seals and boom, and God got scared. And said, oh no, what are we going to do? Neither does the scroll slip out of his hands and go tumbling across the floor of heaven as he calls to the angels, Michael, Gabriel, a little help here. No. It is always fully in his control. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Verse 3, when He opened the second seal. Verse 5, He opened the third seal. He opens Him. He unrolls it. He is in control of the things that take place under each one of these seals. Each step, each event is in His control. You need to remember that as we go, even when we read some pretty scary things. What about that last rider, if you would? The rider's name is Death, and hell followed with him. And a power is given him over a quarter of the earth to kill. That's pretty scary. That's kind of creepy. In fact, all these horsemen are kind of creepy. What's going on? Is it out of God's control? No. He is always in control, and he is working his will and his plan in all of it. And I may not fully comprehend it, but His will in this is good and He is in control of it. By the way, it's true then of what we read. It's going to be true then. And don't forget, beloved, it's true now. None of this is out of God's control. The, the scroll of time, if you want to say it that way, or the events of time, COVID-19 has not taken God by surprise it's not slipped out of his hands like a can of those springy snakes and God's playing catch-up or trying to do damage control. Like, oh no, what happened down there? No, 
He's in control. He has his purpose, and he knows his perfect plan. I may not understand it. I may not even be able to explain it. I might have questions myself, kind of like Job, when Job was going through some things. Not saying I'm the same. No, Job is a man of faith. But I may have questions, but I can have faith in the fact that none of this is out of God's control. It never has been, nor will it be. So the Lamb opens each one of these seals. I don't know if you noticed that. Things like this jump out to me when I read a verse, and I kind of reread it, and I sit and think about it. I don't know if some of this... Jumped out to you as you read these first four verses, but let's see what else we can notice. He says he hears a voice of thunder, one of the four beasts. Uh, we know what these four beasts are. They have another name, and they're given a name in Isaiah chapter 6 of the seraphim. Angels that uh, have six wings, and they cover their face, they cover their feet, and two, they fly. I believe these four beasts are the same as those holy, righteous angels that are always in the presence of God, the ones, as we said last week, that sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. If you haven't read Isaiah chapter 6, go read it. Awesome. Not right now. Later. Awesome passage of Scripture. Awesome. And uh, this four beasts, one of the, these four beasts, I believe, are these very seraphim. Anyways, what is John told to see? Come, look. Check this out. Behold this. Verse 2. Let's look at the rider on the white horse. I gave him a name, the Conqueror. I, I don't know if that's... It's not as cool as the others. You could call the second rider War, and the third rider Famine, and of course the fourth is Death. Cool names, I guess, if you want to say. I, I call him the Conqueror. I don't want to call him the King for a specific reason, but let's see what this... This says here in verse 2, chapter 6 and verse 2, And I saw, behold, a white horse, and him that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. See, I'm not all that original. I just got it out of there. By far, this guy out of the four is the nicest, or the best, I guess, if you want to call him that. The others, not so much. The others are kind of scary. So this is like the good guy, right? You would think that if, as if you read. He seems to be the nice guy. Well, Let's see. Let's notice a few things here. He says he sees a white horse. This guy is riding on a white horse. Does that mean anything? Is that like anything special? Well, he could have been riding on a cow or a donkey or a dragon. You know there's a dragon in the book of Revelation. And a sneak piece, a sneak peek. This rider knows the dragon. I'll just tell you that right straight up. But some of those things we'll get to later. But the vision is a horse. John sees this guy on a horse. Is that coincidence? It's pretty recognizable for people of the day, even us today. We know what a, a horse is. They're powerful, right? They're swift. They run fast. You use them to pull things and to plow, and cowboys rode them to chase down Indians, and people race them at tracks, right? I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse. You ever try riding one at a gallop? It looks cool on TV, but when you're sitting in the saddle, it's a totally different thing. Way back when, uh, I was part of the Boy Scouts before they became weird. I walked into the store and I saw a girl in a Boy Scout uniform. That's not, <laughs> that's not where, not when I was a part of it. That wasn't part of it. Anyways, 
So uh, to, to progress in it, I, I made it all the way to Eagle. And to get there, you had to get merit badges. <clears throat> and one of them I had to learn was horsemanship. So we went out to a ranch somewhere. I don't even remember where it was. And you had to clean up and clean the hooves and put the saddle on. And part of the requirement was you had to gallop in it. And so the instructor made it sound so simple. Kick them in the sides to get going. And when you want them to stop, you simply say, whoa, and you pull back. Sounds good enough, good enough to me. So kicked them in the sides, and that horse took off, and I'm bouncing in the seat. I couldn't hardly hold on, so I tried to follow the instructions and simply pull back and say, whoa, that did not work. The, the, <laughs> the instructor had to ride up beside me, get a hold of the reins, and start pulling for me to, to get the horse to slow down. Listen, horses are big, and they're powerful, and they're swift. We can recognize that. In fact, we've had cars for well over 100 years, and we still rate them in what? Horsepower. We, we get the picture. They're swift, they're powerful, and they're a symbol of position. You see, not everyone then, and quite frankly, not everyone now, can afford to own a horse. They're expensive. They require upkeep. They require land. So it was usually people of rank or position, people that had means, money. So not only is it just a horse, but it's a white horse. Now that, that even speaks to more. White horses were for royalty. You can read in ancient Greek writings. You could read in uh, Josephus' writings, if you're not familiar with him. Uh, he's a historian back in the time of Christ. You could read of all of these ancient writings of the day, and they tell you the same thing. The kings and the princes and the rulers would parade through the streets, whether it's their own city or one that they had conquered on white horses, it would set them apart and it would show their royalty, their power, their position. So that leads me to believe that the rider on this horse is one of power. He's one who holds position. He has some high rank. Whether it's governmental, or it'd have to be governmental, in, in rulership, um, He's a high-ranking, powerful guy riding on this, this horse, okay? I saw him, behold, a white horse. What does it say next? And he that sat on him had a bow. That's not a red bow like the Lexus commercials, like the horse has bows in his hair. No. It's a bow as in bow and arrows. That's, again, easily recognizable. That's a weapon of war. Back then, that was the back-in-the-day guns. That's how they would, uh, they would shoot the other army from a distance, and that was their weapon of war. And wars were won or lost with archers. So again, it's familiar to us. We understand. So this, not, this guy is, is uh, not only a person of rank and uh, position and probably wealth, but he also has... Um, Means of war, I guess, if we could put it. But I want you to notice something. It's something that was pointed out to me a long time ago, and it has stuck with me ever since. He has a bow, right? But it doesn't say he has any arrows. He just has a bow. So what's up with that? Did John forget to write it? Did Jesus forget to tell him? Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But 
I think it shows us something, especially as we're going to look at this in light of other scriptures. He's a writer, excuse me, the writer is a person of position and power and rank with some form of military strength, means or weapons of war that he doesn't have to use. He has the bow, but he doesn't have to shoot any arrows. Why do I say that? Look at the next phrase. A crown was what? Given to him. A crown was given to him. Given, not taken. And the, the word for crown here is one is, is a prize. Uh, Stephanos, I believe, is the Greek word. Not that that matters, but it's, it's kind of the crown. Uh, Paul talks about for the Olympics. That's the word that's in the back of my mind. I got it out. The Olympics, they would win a crown, the, the, the wreath around their head. And it could also symbolize other things too, but it's talking about a prize that was won. Different from a crown we're going to see here in another verse. Uh, but this one was given. It wasn't taken. It says he took a crown for himself. No, it says a crown was given to him. A crown is only given to somebody who or the place of a king, the place of rulership is only given to, say, uh, somebody who inherited it, or if the people willingly gave it. Other than that, it was taken by force. You didn't become a king unless you were made a king by the people, or you inherited that. Um, other than that, you took it by force. You overthrew the standing power to establish yourself. Here it says it was given. This guy is a person of rank and position. He has means of military force, and he does so swiftly. He, he rises to this position swiftly, and the position is given to him. The rule, the crown, is given to him. He does not have to take it by force. I hope this is make, making sense. This guy becomes ruler. He does it quickly. He doesn't do it by any means of military force, and the rule, the crown, is given to him. I hope that makes sense, and I trust at home you're nodding and saying yes. If not, I'm sorry, I can't see you. I'm just, I'm just going to move on. But I hope you see the, the symbols there. Now, it also tells us in the last phrase of verse 2 that he has a goal. He went forth conquering and to conquer. He says it twice. That means he, he's, he's trying to emphasize and make a point. John wants us to see this. His goal is to conquer. Now, the Greek word you might not understand, or it might not ring a bell with you. The Greek word root is niko. But the way it's translated in Revelation 2 and 3 should. Because this same word in Revelation 2 and 3 is translated overcome. Overcome. He goes forth to overcome and he overcomes. This guy's goal is to conquer, and that's exactly what he's going to do. He doesn't rest until that happens. A ruler that rises to power swiftly, that the rule is given to him, that he comes into his place without means of a military show of force. That's what I see here in this first seal. So let's answer the question, who is this guy? Because that would probably be pretty good to know, right? Especially if, if he's like the first thing that sets off all this uh, 
seven years of the end time, right? It'd probably be pretty good to know who he is. How do I say this? There, there's not a lot that surprises me when it comes to the Christian world. Um, I've, I've been in this all my life. I've been around this and I've heard and read a lot from um, conservative Christianity to liberal Christianity. I've read a lot of, um, how do you say it, criticism of Christianity. I've read a lot of different beliefs. So there's not a lot that kind of surprises me when it comes to that. Like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, okay, I've, I've seen that before. I think the last thing to drop my jaw was when some guys came up and they were talking to me and it turned out to be some queen of heaven queen of heaven i think hogwash I, man that was those guys left and i was literally kind of stunned like i can't believe anybody believes that but kind of happened to me uh this past week as i was studying i i, I thought this go around in my study i i kind of want to just broaden and, and read some some commentaries even outside of ones that I trust. Just want to see what's out there and, and see what people are thinking. And I, I, I read more than a few. I visited more than a few to get a large sense of, of what people think when it comes to some of these verses. Um, I visited some that were new, like newer commentaries, to some that are 200 plus years old. And some of what I found was pretty startling. There are many, not all, there are many who say this first writer is Jesus. They say it's Jesus. There's many who don't, but there's many who say this is Jesus. After all, he is royalty, right? And he came in a very meek manner, and he won his position. He won the victory without having to use force. And this first writer, because he is peaceful, and he brings peace, as we'll see how far we get, but it must have been Jesus. That kind of surprised me. Really, I had never heard that before. I read the reasoning, and I actually a viewpoint of that has most of what we're going to read already taken place. They have most of the book of Revelation already happened. It's already happened long before us. And I don't agree with that. I think the book of Revelation has... Not much of which has not taken place. It is the future. It is a revealing of the future to come. And I don't believe this guy's Jesus. Not at, not at all. Quite frankly, if this is Jesus on a horse, it's weak. And I don't I don't, I don't mean that to be blasphemous. I don't mean that to be disrespectful. This ain't Jesus on a horse. You want to see Jesus on a horse? Follow me. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, you have to turn, you have to see this. Things like this make me excited. Things like this um, send chills up my spine. Because, man, you can't, you can't compete with this. Revelation 19, 11. You want to see Jesus on a horse? Let's see Jesus on a horse. Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True and in Righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. By the way, this word is diadem. 
You ever heard that old hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name? It says, Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. This is a king's crown. That writer in chapter 6, he's got a little leaf crown, one that is won as a prize. This is the crown of a king, and on his head are many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And by the way, that blood is not his own. That time is past. This is the blood of his enemies as he pours out his wrath and wins his victory. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him on white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see that? That is Jesus on a horse. That is the Lamb of God. That is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is not this guy in Revelation 6. The guy in Revelation 6 is a fake. He's a phony. He's a knockoff of what we see here. He's trying to be that, if you get what I'm saying. You ever seen a Rolex that looks like a Rolex, but it ain't? It's kind of the same thing going on. This guy wants to appear powerful, and he fools a lot of people that give him the rule, but he is not the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords. You know what? We got a nickname for the guy in Revelation 6. You know who we call him? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. By that way, we, hear, we use the word anti and we think opposed which that's one of the meanings of the word. That word has two meanings. Anti, anti in Greek has two meanings. One that is opposed and one that is put in place of. Something that is put in place of that appears to be. This guy's trying to be Christ. Trying to appear in that way. And his rise to power will be swift. It will be peaceful, and it will be willingly given to him. I used to think that was not possible until now. Just think over the past two months how much freedoms the American public has willingly given up without so much as a squawk. Stay at home? Okay. Wear a mask? Okay. Because it's good for everybody. Without a well, I think we're starting to get restless now. But in a, in a word, everybody went silent and immediate obedience. A shadow of what will come with this first rider. Now listen, there's much we still have to say. We're going to come back, we're going to explain, I'm going to show you scripture for why I say what I do. We'll go to the book of Daniel, we'll go to Revelation 13, we'll go there. But I want to lay out the four horsemen first, the first four seals first, because it's all really important. So let's do that first, and, and we'll get back to it. So I know I said a lot. I just threw a lot out there. Some of you, probably most of you have heard some of that before. Maybe some of you are hearing this for the first time. Stick with me. Let's, let's see. So 
Kind of a long explanation for the first seal, but we're laying the foundation of who we're dealing with. The next three are going to be quicker. Revelation 6 and 3. So if you've turned away, let's turn back there. First rider, white horse, first seal. So Jesus breaks the first seal, unrolls the timeline a little bit. With that comes this person who rises to power swiftly. He does so peacefully. He conquers. I mean, that's what he does. He, he rules over people. It's not Jesus. Then the second seal comes. Revelation 6 and verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. By the way, that he is Jesus. Verse 4. And there went out another horse that was red. Excuse me. There went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. So there's the horse again. Again, that's to remind us of the swiftness of the power that these things take place with. Okay. So the first Rider, the first individual, rises to power swiftly. The second rider, we'll call him War, I guess, if you want to give him a name. He is just as swift and just as powerful. And this horse is red. Well, what does red mean? Greek, literally, the color of fire. A perfect representation of what he brings. Just about every war movie I've watched or pictures of war that I've seen somewhere there's burning fire of course along with the color of blood that's a pretty good picture of what this seal entails the seal is opened and all of a sudden all hell breaks loose this individual as well would be in a place of position and power of rank of control And it says it was given to him to take peace. Now, that word power in my translation is in italics, so that tells me it was added by the translators. It's not there in the originals. It just says it was given to him to take peace. Well, given by who? Who gives him this power? Well, remember, it's ultimately God. All things are in his control. All things are under his watch and in his plan. Remember, don't forget that. It's easy to say that when there's nice and peaceful and this white horse who seems to be pretty, but when you got one that's taking life, it doesn't change the control, plan, purpose of God. But I think there's also another factor. Someone who specifically gives power to do this. One that we'll see later, and that's where the dragon that I talk about comes in. And like I said, we'll get back to it and explain some of this. So, It is given to him to take peace from the earth. I don't know if you um, noticed that phrase, to take peace. That means if he's taking it, it was already there. Young's literal translation says to take the peace from the earth. Regardless, it means that there was peace that was brought. If this writer is taking peace, 
then somebody had to bring peace. And I think that is the rider on the white horse. He brings peace. Now listen, we might think we're peaceful right now, but I don't, I don't think... Um, well, it says to take peace, yes, to take peace from the earth. So far in human history, that's not been the case. There hasn't been worldwide peace. There may have been an absence of wars, but there's not been tranquility, and that's what the, the word peace, irene, is. Tranquility, just a state of rest and peace. There may have been an absence of wars, but there's always been tension between nations. There's been contracts not to go to war, but there's still tension there, right? There's not been total tranquility over the face of the earth. There's always people vying for power. Even with, we, we could say... <clears throat> The U.S. has been in a state of peace for most of our existence, except the Civil War. But even in so-called peacetimes, you have political struggles, right? Left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, all that stuff that goes on. There's a struggle for power. There's not peace in the House. There's not peace in the Senate. This first horseman brings a peace under his rule that extends over all the earth. Because if the second rider is going to take peace from the earth, then somebody had to give it. And I believe that is the first one. A peace like never before. This guy comes and takes it all away. He takes peace from the earth that they should, that would be inhabitants of the earth, that they should kill one another. Now, I don't know if this means a world war, but it's humans killing humans. Let me put it in another phrase or a couple more phrases that might ring a couple bells with you. Nation rising against nation. Kingdom rising against kingdom. Wars and rumors of wars. Peace is gone. There is no peace. There is total war, bloodshed, people dying. Peace has been removed. Part of the events of the last seven years of this age involves worldwide death. That they should kill one another. The Bible doesn't make any um, bones about it. As the timeline unfolds, there is a time of peace and there is a time of war. It says it was given unto him a great sword, a great sword, a mega machaira, if you're um, interested in the Greek. <clears throat> I only bring these up because some of the word choice is very specific and interesting. If I picture this guy, and I, I've looked up a couple images like of the four horsemen, and they got this kind of what, what I would imagine, this big, huge horse with flames coming out of his nostrils and this big guy looks like Conan the Barbarian with this huge giant sword swinging around his head, you know. Kind of the, the uh, image that you get. But that's not the word that is used for sword. And I think it... I, I, never, I never want to impose my, my own feelings on Scripture. That could be the worst thing that I could do. If I do that, I might as well sit down, Okay. But I think the words are used for a reason. Hebrews chapter 
4 says the, the Bible is like a two-edged sword. And he uses a specific term. It's not a broad sword, these big, giant, two-handed swords. No, it's a short sword, a makaira, if I'm remembering right. It took skill, precision. I mean, you couldn't poke somebody six feet away. You had to get close and personal. And it says here he has that kind of sword. I think it shows us that the reason war is brought is a personal reason. This, this guy has an agenda. The, the goal is not just to have widespread death of all humanity. No. There's a skill in it. He uses this sword of war in a specific way for a specific purpose. There's a target in his sight. And I believe as we read the other scriptures, specifically in Revelation 13, we'll see that. We'll see that. So that's the first and the second seal. As this timeline is unrolled, we see these two riders, one that rules, rises to his rule in a peaceful way. Rule is given him. People willingly make him their king, as you will. And he conquers, man. He rules and he brings seemingly a peace over all the earth. And this second rider takes it away. And he brings war and he brings death. And there's a purpose in what he brings. So is it two different people? Are we looking for two different people in this? Is this talking about the same person? Well, we'll answer those questions um, here in the next couple lessons. What I'd like for you to do for a little bit of homework before next Wednesday is read verse 5 down through verse 8 and do the same thing. Just read and read it and think about it and see what you notice there in Scripture. And uh, we'll see what we can pull out next week and see what it means for us.